0: Welcome to Australian Basketball Coach. I'm your host, Anthony Corcoran. All right, and welcome to Australian Basketball Coach. I'm uh, here in Brisbane again today at the Basketball Queensland head office in Chandler with Warwick Can, the General Manager for Game Development. Welcome, Warwick. Thanks, man. Uh, <laughs> I'm good. Uh, great to be here today. Like, um, thanks for making the time for the interview today, too. Really appreciate mm,
1: that. No problem. I hope it's of some value to someone sometime. Oh, some time.
0: <laughs> You know, that's it's one of the things that I want to do with this podcast is just talk to people who have experience in the game. Uh, um, I think everyone draws influence and, and you know, uh, inspiration, I, I, I guess, too, from different areas and I know with your background uh, you've been a few different places and done a few different things and, and I uh, once I started researching what you had done I found it really interesting actually like mm, so mm. and also given that the fact that we've had a yarn um, at different times um, I thought this would be a good it'll be a good
1: conversation. Mm. No, it's, a, it's an interesting it's a long way from being a school teacher in Naira to uh, trying to convince uh, 120 Scottish coaches <laughs> that what you're saying had was little similar legitimacy, you know, and get them to change. So uh, it's been a a very interesting... Mix of management, teaching, and coaching. So I'm very privileged to have trod the, the journey that I've trod.
0: Yeah. Well, how did you get involved in basketball? Um, I had a suspicion you had a teaching background looking at your. Um,
1: yeah, look, I, I got introduced to basketball in my year 12. I went to Sydney Boys High School, which then became a, a good basketball school, but was a rugby school, selective boys school, and uh, some mates were playing it and had a really engaging coach who used to play allowed me to get a feel for it. So my first experience of of playing was really good, which I think is important. Someone who cared, a coach who cared and gave you opportunities. So that was good. I think back on that and I go,
0: yeah, that was
1: probably a major role. And then I went off to university and Someone always needed to coach, and I actually started coaching before that. I um, I grew up in the eastern suburbs of Sydney, um, Centennial Park, right next to Showground, Sydney Creek Ground. So I lived in a sporting right. precinct. Yeah. Uh, I used to run around Centennial Park and, you know, um, very much influenced by the sport of the day. But, um, yeah, look, uh, my coaching career started when I was in uh, grade six, <laughs> And I was a rugby league. I found rugby league late for a kid. Uh, and uh, a mate and I organised a game between the fifth graders and the sixth graders, and oh, nice. we were kind of like captain coaches of the fifth grade side, even though we we're in sixth grade, to get a competitive gra- game. And up at New Bamford, uh, not New Bamford, but the reservoir at Centennial Park, we played our first game. And I, I think back to that. Whatever possessed you to even want to do that, you know? And it was just, I guess, that love of the game and. Um, you know, just wanted to coach and get involved, and just wanted to play, and as you did, and then, you know, went to a, as I say Sydney High, which is a very good sporting school in a great precinct. Went off to university. Opportunity came, and then um, when as a department uh, worked in those days, you had to identify where you wanted to go. I didn't get my first choice, but a mate and I said, "Look, uh, we're not going to subscribe to the bureaucrats." Um, <laughs> You know, they'd say, "I oh, just put down any region. You won't get it. Just put down any region. And so my mate and I were a bit of a larrikins. And um, we said, no, we're going to put down what we want. So I uh, put down my first choice, which was the Hunter area. never been there. My second choice was South Coast, New South Wales, which I got. And he got his first choice. And ironically, um, one of our fellow uh, students, same year, was a bit of a smart aleck. And he put down anywhere... Uh, anywhere east of the Darling All right. uh, and they stuck him on the eastern bank of the Darling <laughs> so it shows you how you would probably get this in the public service how it works but uh, yeah so a bit of an entree there from a school to a good opportunity university and then when they posted me out I landed in a place called Nara and um, New South Wales, Shoalhaven, which at that stage was a, uh, punching above its weight with uh, senior basketball. And those who know basketball, Bobby Turner said Bobby and I are the same age and landed in town the same year. So right. he used to live across from the school, so I'd spend my lunchtimes talking to him. And then um, one of the imports, the late Gene Rogers, was a great man and he had a very distinguished uh, playing career and um, he taught at the school, so I was immersed in it that way. I lived in a, um, a boarded right next to the stadium didn't know walked over there and parents said look what are you doing with your time would you mind you want to coach my son's team so that's how it started first right. year out and had some success and then finished third at the state championship under 14 level and and kind of went from there and got the passion because I was in the right environment and then, um, you know, you run into people like John Martin a life member down that way, it kind of was influential so I became um, state convener for basketball in New South Wales and got that going, uh, so very proud that I got the inter-regional stuff going and actually established girls basketball in New South Wales primary schools so yeah so that's how I got involved with coaching yeah excellent um, so
0: you mentioned uh, that you had I guess, been around people who had a love for basketball and and that sort of thing. So what sort of impact do you think having the right mentors at that time played in terms of where you headed with your basketball coaching career?
1: Well, I think it's not necessarily the mentors. I think they come or you you seek them out. Um, I was lucky in the context of Bobby Turner and some other players and being in the right environment. But I think similarly, my background in Sydney and where I went to school that repeated itself when I came out as a teacher so I landed in a basketball environment so at that stage you're single you've got a lot of time on your hands you do what you like you know and, and that's how it kind of started and then you get engrossed I think once you get engrossed in it like I said before with Bobby you go and pick his brains or you know if it was John Martin or whoever it may have been at the particular time and then you see good players and you, you learn you know, Ray Borner I kind of had some time with because he was playing with Yes. <laughs> Wollongong and the Hawks and Shoalhoven's really close. Uh, Gordie McLeod's a really good friend of mine. and yeah. I was the inaugural um, Illawarra Academy of Sport Basketball Coach and Gordie was my assistant. <laughs> All right, you know, so you get good people around you, I guess, and then you, you go, but there's no doubt that uh, I think a lot of people talk about mentors, but I think it's not one mentor. It's, it's seeking mentors or seeking knowledge and then mentors will normally give if they see that you're enthusiastic for yourself so I think so I kind of differ to the normal model of saying it's one mentor or one person. Yeah. I think it's a number of circumstances that influence you hmm. uh, so far as that but I certainly had them along the way um, uh, Bob McGugan was a really well respected uh, New South Wales coach so I was kind of able to um, work with him so I need, needed to learn at that level so I did the younger age groups in New South Wales and then did that as an experience and then ultimately became New South Wales under-20s uh, head coach after doing under-18s and 16s. And yeah. So, you know, you seek out people with experience, and, you know, and then there's people around. So even to this day, I still pick the brains of people, whether it was Owen Hewitt at the coaches' conference or just to get an opinion about things or, yeah. or Brendan or whoever. So I think mentors are very, very important and, and seeking out and having a... Probably having a growth mindset is something I talk about to the coaches up here.
0: Yeah. Can you talk about that a little bit?
1: I think you've got to have a growth mindset. It's kind of on our Big Coaches Weekend, which is on in a couple of weeks type of thing. So I get the opening address of, you know, why you're coaching and what makes you think that you're, you're a coach type of thing. So I think, uh, I think look, understanding why and why, why what your purpose is or, or the whys about it become very, very important. And I think my experience tells me there's a lot of really, really good coaches who don't get a good name or don't get the publicity, et cetera, um, you know, and the same thing applies in the United States. Some of them, you know, now they're starting to come out with podcasts and highlight some some doing coaches that you'd never heard of. But yeah. and the same in Australia. So I think there's great coaches that you can learn off, and um, they become signposted to. You. So then you go in search of them.
0: Yeah, yeah. Um, you mentioned earlier on uh, about your um, teaching background, and obviously that's got to be something that would have helped.
1: It it was, yeah. And, yeah, like 16 years of teaching and being formalized there and, like, I I tell a story about my very first class I was in and... Try and be quick, but you know, after lunch in primary school, you used to try to settle the classes down. So you used to have reading. So my first introduction to being an effective communicator was in my first year as teaching. And uh, anyway, they're all sitting down, and everyone's reading a book, and I'm reading a book, and then I look up at this young girl named Susan. And I said, Susan, what are you doing? You know, and she's clearly not reading a book. She's looking at a pencil case in front of her. You know, in those days, they used to scribble all over the top of it and stuff. Like that, so um, so I said, Susan, what are you doing? You know, she's oh, reading, sir. You know, and I went, trying not to lose my cool I said, What, you know, what reading your pencil case? She goes, No, Sandra's. <laughs> <laughs> so it taught me very early to be very effective with your use of the words, and even though your intent is right, that you may have to have a couple of goes at it to get it right. So, so no doubt teaching and everything that went with that teaches you or allows to do it. And I think the awakening for me now is all these years later, as I say to the coaches that that we put through our association level, it's actually not about teaching and coaching; it's about learning, mm-hmm. and it's about it's not it's not you the coach teaching. You, the coach coaching, it's about whether your players learn and whether your team learns. Yeah, and we, we kind of flip it around the wrong way. So, yeah, you know, I think with experience, you learn that you know, the um, the teacher arrives when the student is ready, which is an old thing. So, it's the same thing with coaching when you're chiseling away. With got a lot of young kids on my NPP program up here, so you just you're waiting that moment, so teaching tells you and allows you to have that experience. That you're just waiting for that moment. I mean, if you if you're ready to go and know what to say, then you're going to get it done. And it might be that light bulb moment that makes a player. So mm. plenty of experience in past with those types of things. Yeah, yeah,
0: excellent. Um, so I just wanted to fast forward to today, yeah. and, and I just I wanted to ask you a little bit about what your role here at BQ is.
1: Yeah, it's called General Manager Game Development, but it's probably best described as the High Performance Director, and that's what it used to be called. You know, changed around so. My role was basically coaches and athletes. I originally had referees, but I won't say thank God. But now I don't don't have to worry about those. So, uh, we've restructured a bit to kind of look at what what that entails. So my charter and general management is all all areas of coaching and and player development. So all the programs that we have with that, and then probably being the um, you know, the expert voice in terms of basketball for the chief executive, you know, to... Call upon should it be needed yeah. to talk about those things. So it's a good role. It's it's actually <laughs> I fulfilled a role very similar a long time ago for Barcelona Queensland, when I was on my journey. I kind of came up from coaching the Bendigo Braves and took on a job which was here, manager technical development was like the the old state ITC oh, right. head coach or NITP coach, and then had some other responsibilities. This is. This is a lot more refined version, so I, I'm the head coach of the MPP program, but I'm the general manager of game development, so I supervise staff and program structure and stuff like that. Really? That's no, good. It's a good role.
0: Yeah. I think one of the things that you can certainly be really proud of, one of the things that I've uh, read a little bit, is your The Style of Play document that was produced this year. And just for people who might not know or haven't seen it yet, what is it and why was it created?
1: Yeah, well, it's it's a Queensland thing, I guess. So it's it's a Maroon uh, thing. Um, it's it's kind of like a uh, the coaching philosophy and the framework around probably youth elite coaching or youth coaching in Queensland. I won't say seniors because that's a professional era, but it's the foundation um, of the way that basketball Queensland and us as a cohort believe that the game should. uh, should be taught or, or framework in which it should work. Um, it came about um, mainly from a desire for clarity so a lot of people talk about preferred style of play and whether age groups should follow senior teams and whether every national junior team in Australia should play the way the Boomers or the Ables play and forever and a day everyone talks about that even in Europe Um, so I've got some fairly strong thoughts on whether that's actually achievable and whether that actually works so uh, it was a labour of love so when I was in the UK they asked me to write a curriculum which I refused to do and said I'll write some areas of emphasis for you and produce um, a blueprint for coaches basically over there but it was more about coach education, this one's similarly about coach education but uh, it's more about clarity for coaches to put things into compartments so that they better understand what's important with coaching so uh, why did we do it Uh, when I came into the job you know people talked about it without being disrespectful. a lot of them really couldn't succinctly s- summarise it for mm. me um, I knew what it meant, I knew what its intent was but I couldn't do it spoke to a lot of people, national Burmas coaches, Opals coaches and appreciate the 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 differentiation between men's and women's even though we say so, we say so now, we're playing the same style um, so it came about just through a clarity so with the uh, state performance managers when i first came in we had one north one and south who were preaching the style of play so we just basically did a, a desk audit called in everything in that everyone knew that we talked about style of play including all the direction documents from basketball australia picked about what was there found the gaps worked out what we wanted to do with it. Yeah. Modified. <laughs> so like the style of play that we've written in Queensland is 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 guided by the national style of play. But In our style play, we've chosen to differentiate the way Queenslanders play with some different areas of emphasis. It'll take time to embed that in there. But, for example, tag-up defense is a Queensland thing. Yeah. Uh, Emanated Aaron Aaron Fern and... um, McDowney, you know, out of cans, and then it's kind of grown internationally to get some recognition. So, you know, we're a tag up state uh, who believe in that in our philosophy, and we still have the challenges of trying to teach it effectively. But that's the reason that the, the document was put together just to really aid the, the clarity for coaches, because uh, I think there's a lot of assumptions made in coach education that people know things and. At the end of the day, one thing you learn is you know, you don't know what you don't know. So you actually have to state it. So that's what this is about. This style of place statement is about why we reviewed it, what's the purpose of the documents you know, what's the overview, um, you know, and then how we differentiate between Basketball Australia's pace, poise and penetration offence with our uh, pace, space and create and there's, there's subliminal messages that flow which basically I think allow us to, to highlight the key components a bit better than, you know, uh, or with more clarity. Yeah. Than, um, than had been passed on previously.
0: So. Yeah. And so for coaches who are listening to the podcast and obviously linking in with, you know, some of the stuff that might be in the document but also um, want to be current and, and be relevant to what's happening at the national level, like... Does this get supported by a bit of a how-to as well in terms of? Um-
1: yeah, well, it's it's a, it's a it's a it's a framework document, so it doesn't give you every little bit of detail of technical knowledge. It gives you an overview of probably what I would def- def- um, describe as phases of the game. Like when I was coming through, no one highlighted that as an overview. Of, here's the fa- Here's the. Um, phases of the game and particularly transition defence, everyone talked about fast break but never talked about transition defence and now with all the metrics and stuff like that that are running around transition defence is such a crucial element of your of your defence so it certainly adds value I think and then probably the task, like I said before don't like writing curriculum documents because it becomes very prescriptive but it's inevitable that once you write one document that you have to add to it with some appendix or some clarifying documents. So they'll certainly, for our Queensland coaches who are registered in Queensland and working within our system for the good of our um, taxpayers in Queensland, then we'll certainly be sharing that how-to aspect of the style of applying.
0: Excellent. Yeah. One of the things I did want to sort of ask you as well in relation to the the document is what are, what are our areas, when I was saying our, I was not saying Queensland, What's our areas of differentiation if you looked at, say, the teams that are at a national championships and how they play? What would separate Queensland teams from those other teams?
1: Well, I think if everyone's doing the same thing and you're not getting a competitive advantage, so the tag up and the defence is probably an area Queensland teams don't have a good reputation or haven't had a good reputation. playing defence, so the subtleties of whether a pack defence is disruptive enough um, is one point of differentiation, so whereby we think there's some value in pack defence, we prefer to battle, so when you're battling you've got to contain, then you've got to disrupt, and you can do that individually and tactically, so that's a, a subtle enhancement I guess of what what the national philosophy would be and we're clear on on, on prioritising that yeah. um, there are certain things with within it that if you read the document like if you want to be an offensive team then you have to coach offensive skill and you have to be patient and supportive of athletes to have the time to do it so the example is If you don't teach shooting well And you don't encourage shooting Then don't expect your your teams To be winning Mm. Um Whereby defence will kind of you know win you a championship, but ultimately if you're looking at it metrically, and all the analytics, the key component is your, your shooting percentage, and your effective field goal percentage. That's the key determinant when you when you look at all the four factors and deal it down. So having done two years of study of the WNBL of all that, and when we won our championship, you know it's 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 the subtlety of taking threes, not just making threes. Mm. So when I came out of Europe and the Great Britain girls who just finished fourth at Eurobasket, we had a reputation of not shooting the ball well. So what's the solution with that? So the solution is to accept it or to enhance it. So in Queensland by way of example and answering a question is we want our kids to be brave shooters. So to be brave shooters there's a there's there's a storyline that goes with brave. So coach has to work out what's brave and then what is has earned the rights to, to take that shot. So you can be a brave shooter who doesn't practice, which is one category, yeah. but if you're a brave shooter who practices regularly, then you should get the green light by your coach to go out there and be the factor for your team to, mm. to help you win. Yeah. So there are those little nuances between subtle differences.
0: Yeah, no, that's good. Uh, I think that sort of guidance is really overdue, really, because um, yeah, sometimes I think coaches rely on just gut instinct, and mm. they sort of know what might get it done, and other times, you know, I think mm. having a bit of framework there to talk about might be really useful, actually.
1: Well, I think it's, it's you don't know what you don't know, so a lot of coaches have a very locked-in philosophy, and this is what I do, and this is my system, and I recruit players to your system, and well, you know, some people are able to do that. Other people in Australia, you inherit teams. You know, mm-hmm. you, you inherit who walks in the day. So, you you know, it's very selfish to then say it's my team and you're not fitting my prescription. Out the door you go type thing. So I think it goes against the Australian spirit and culture yeah. to, to do that. So I think once you drill down on that and you understand that there's some, there's some grey there, it's not black and white and you have that growth mindset, then you'll find what everyone is now finding, which is basically it's about, in, in this generation, about empowering players and about giving them the freedom to play and to own own the task and own the challenge whereby 20 years ago, it 30 years ago, it was the old teacher, teacher knows all, you know, you're the student. Yeah. You take, and I think that's where the subtlety between uh, teaching and coaching to now... You're not. You're creating learning environments. Mm. So hopefully this style of play goes to highlight that and to open that little trap door for yep. some coaches' minds, just to start thinking of it a bit differently. There's plenty of metrics behind it all. So. Yeah, excellent. In terms
0: of BQ's high performance programs, like how do you define success with those?
1: Well, we have the obvious KPIs. So, yeah. you know we have national representatives. So I think. Uh, Year-to-date, we've got 28 Queenslanders who have represented Australia. Um, yeah, we have other barometers like kids invited to development camps. So that's 27 of actually made teams or uh, squads. Then you've got measures of how many kids to go to ADC. So we just had the last September, we had 10, 10 there, which was punching above our weight mm. uh, that way. Uh, we have KPIs of trying to meddle. You know, we've come through a really good era where, you know, 20 years ago I was in North Queensland and. You know, and my son kind of come through the whole system, so he came through, you know, played in or played under-14s Australian Club, and then 16s, 18s. So I've been through all that system, and in the old ITC days, that was still part of the QAS program. So, you know, guys like Dave Herbert, Shane Froling all worked out of my offices, so I never, even though I was working for the QAS, I didn't lose touch with basketball. But I would never have thought that the North would win a national championship mm. and yet they've done it in both girls and boys and under 18s and which is, is remarkable and you've got to have the talent to do it and you've got to have the coaches to go with it. Um, so, you know, obviously doing well at national championships is, is another KPI but we have to remember that there's three other state associations that have by far more registered members than what we have. Mm. Um, so Victoria, New South Wales and even WA are uh, way above us in terms of resource allocation and talent pool so yeah we certainly have those Um, we certainly have to um please government and we have to one of the good things about Queensland is that government does invest but if you please them uh, so QAS still invests in basketball we um, yep. got a good home for our NPP and state team programs when we need it out of the QAS so you know we're lucky in that environment but you can't just judge success on any one year it's trends over time and it'll ebb and flow but we certainly have those KPIs
0: Yeah, I wanted to ask you about about your stint in England as well that sounded very interesting, you had mm. seven years over there?
1: Yeah, about yeah. seven years, yeah, so I went had. over there for one <laughs> maybe maybe three and ended up staying for seven And,
0: and how did that opportunity come about?
1: Um, it basically became a recommendation by Tom Maher, I think it was, so Tom was over there coaching the women's team and um, my wife is um, British, I won't say English, she's Welsh. And um, and it came to a time that I went, you know, she wanted to see snow. Well, this is the way I tell the story. She wanted, <laughs> she wanted to see snow. We weren't going to see it in Australia. Had a lot of relatives. Uh, we'd both lost our parents, you know, over preceding years. And it was just probably a time to do, to go on an adventure. So um, job came up. um got interviewed, got recommended, went over to do one job and after six months I was doing a different job and then it kind of continued to ebb and flow from that time on. So it went from a bit of a change up to a, to a good shift, you know, <clears the throat> very memorable years and really happy that really Women Now with all the, what we call the T16 generation, so towards Rio 2016, so I was in the, the Olympic cycle trying to build. We lost a lot of our good players, male and female, but particularly female, to the um, the college system because FIBA changed its qualification windows. Right. So you lost all your good players between the age of 19 and 22, you lost. Well, that group's just come back and they finished fourth at Eurobasket, mm. so I feel really good about that. Yeah, there's a lot of highs and lows. A um, couple of photos over there of the first championships, so we basically went from mid-tier Division B to winning Division B championships and then ultimately Over the period of time, mainly more so the boys, but... in girls and boys, we're Division, division A, which is the, the power brokers. Um, so in Europe, the top 12 play Division A, and that's all the power. Spain, France, Lithuania, Russia, if they qualify yep. all those. So um, I feel really proud that they've consistently been – best has been eighth. Um, if you think of – it's easier in Australia to qualify for a world, but out of Europe it was really hard. Mm. If you think of it this way, uh, to qualify a junior team for a World Junior Championship in Europe, you had to be in a top six. We were knocking on the door between 10 and 8 after three years of me being there. So I feel really satisfied about that. You know, coaches have gone off and coached all over the world, guys that I'd mentor, you know, so in yeah. Canada and all over the place now. So, yeah, very memorable years. Met a lot of good people. Think I did a good job with my shift, and uh, now I'm back.
0: Did you get used to the warm beer? Uh,
1: <laughs> no, we drank. Ironically, drank Fosters. Fosters <laughs> cold on tap at the Ball Hotel, so in Sheffield. So, no, I think that's a myth. I think that's a. I think that's a myth. The yeah. <laughs> the Poms love their ales or their beers and their lagers. So, well, right.
0: yeah. What were the the key differences you you saw in terms of, I guess, how Great Britain were playing basketball at that po- point in time, and how things were happening in Australia before you went.
1: Yeah, obviously I took all the Australian experience over, but the first thing you realise you're not you're not in an Australia, and you don't have the system. So, first thing was to build a talent identification system. Which I did based upon what I knew here, and then make sure that we were sinking time into development. So even. Today. I think they've changed the names, and but there's now 10 regional performance hubs All right. throughout England, which is the mainstay um, with Scotland of, of what Great Britain is, but it's, it's mainly English. Um, so the differences were stark. Um, basically, I walked into England wanting to be Spain, and um, and the nuances there that Spain had a million, I think it's a million registered players, uh, had sponsorship throughout the... Throughout the whole system, employed something like fifty people. Um, had professional league, which was recognised, you know, apart from Euroleague, as, as Spanish Liga A, as, you know one of the major competitions. So the thing was, everyone wanted to be like Spain. and I just think you know, management taught me that you got to pick your benchmarks. So there were a lot of things that stood out to me, uh, but you had to pick the things that could get you going. Um, So, changing the approach of what we did with some of the things, being hard and frank and honest with some coaches, some big discussions like Steve Bucknell, is an All-American, played NBA with the Lakers and is a great name you know you kind of had some very spirited debates at European Championship when if you don't do certain things right we're not going to be in Division A if you keep doing what you're doing we're going to be in Division B so a lot of memorable things that stood out as you go um but developing a system and then we couldn't compete so we had to find ways to win, uh, which was basically introducing, introducing metrics and what was important yeah. in metrics. So turnovers were a big thing and the possession game was a big thing for us because we couldn't shoot. But eventually subsequent generations can shoot and do shoot and we score and there's still the, the nuances of the... Uh, the thing a lot of things struck me about european basketball that i hadn't seen in australia um side so pick and roll by anyone whether it was Turkey Czechoslovakia Spain you name it their kids at under 16 under 18s all all understood it uh, the thing you have to appreciate over there under 16 means they're turning 16 right. Eight, under 18s is turning 18 whereby the Australian system is the year younger so you kind of have to get that into your head when you're looking at maturation stuff but um, great athletes great talent and um, Cavell Bigby-Williams, who's now with New Orleans, discovered him as a 15-year-old. He had an injury. He was a soccer goalkeeper and walked in and, you know, (laughs) has now been uh, gone to the pros. So, um, yeah, some interesting stories and observations, but probably too many to kind of (laughs) go through here. And you did some work with the great Britain Olympic team as well? Uh, no, I was in. I was the head of performance at that stage. So that was two thousand and twelve. So I was kind of. I worked with the coaches. Like I was really close. Chris Finch was the head coach. Is now at New Orleans as the associate head coach. I uh, was the head coach. So I went to EuroBasket at that stage. I was the head of performance. The following year, two thousand and thirteen, I became national teams director. So. Um, yeah, so we went to Eurobasket and that's where I kind of got more involved with the senior teams and the direction of the senior teams. But in the in the Olympics, no, I was kind of at that stage, the rung under, head of performance. Mm. So I did the um, – I created a futures team, uh, which was basically our under-23 talent. Uh, got the assistant coaches for the Olympic team to coach it. So Nick Nurse, Nick Nurse and from Toronto, and I went to Germany. He was the head coach of the futures, and I was the performance director. And, yeah, good memories. And, yeah. you know, going through and, you know, his tactics at that stage were, were evident. So that's how the tie-up became, but I wasn't – in the two thousand twelve Olympics I wasn't involved the next year, but the year after that I kinda oh, became involved yeah. with them in Eurobasket and the following The following years under Joe Prunty, who came in after Chris, and uh, Damien Jennings is now in in Calgary. We reached at that stage achieved our best ever results at EuroBasket in both men and women. The women have now gone on one high, gone higher, Mm. finishing the top four. But they've got some they got three standout players who've matured, and they've got all that youth that was um, part of the T sixteen strategy.
0: Right, and do the in uh, England do they have? That competition between, say, soccer and and uh, basketball, like uh, the predominant sport that that takes the,
1: the yeah, my of wife, my wife and I kind of a a, uh, a view on this as sceptical Australians. I think that um, anything who knows anyone about English sport or British sport, it's very traditional and. Um, The governance is very traditional, even though UK sport have done a pretty good job in what they do, but the traditional model is still there. So those who have got a seat at the table, have a seat at the table. Um, When I was over there, we went through funding debate, you know, funding pulled, funding reinstalled political debates. You know, parliamentary committees, everything about funding. And the basic reason why that was done is because basketball, as a male youth sport, was the second most popular sport. In England. Right. So football was number one and basketball was the number one black and ethnic minority yeah. sport and it was the second most popular high school sport played and that was by Sport England measures uh, which were participation measures and stuff like that. So, But it didn't get its share of funding and still doesn't get its share of funding which right. is one of the reasons it's it's held itself back. If, it, if they were able to employ coach They'd be far better off, but it's, it's the, the, uh, the professional clubs are the only people that kind of employ coaches, so a lot right. of the other people are just entrepreneurs trying to make a few bucks out of it, but if you had, you know, development coaches like Australia had in England, mm. they'd be far further advanced than where they are now.
0: Right. Interesting. So uh, let's go to Townsville now, uh, mm-hmm. my old hometown. I, we, we talked a little bit before about the success that the Townsville Fire had when you are involved up there mm-hmm. with mm-hmm. that WNBL program, but mm-hmm. a place like Townsville, you know, like I talked to Ian Stacker a few weeks ago and he made the comment that it was a bit of a hard place to recruit to at times mm-hmm. uh, from an NBL team perspective. But they have, you know, I think the the evidence is there. They have had a lot of success with both um, junior and senior programs over a long period of time. So, why do you think that is?
1: Uh, look, I think the influence of, of the respective crocs and then the fire and then it being of a good size, even though population is shrinking and economic times are a bit harder now, but like a, a good-sized town of 200,000 people with the convenience of travel. When I went to Townsville, there was only the one indoor court and there were all the outdoor courts. Now you've kind of got seven courts that are all fanned or uh, four of which are air-conditioned, mm. you know. So facilities plays part, I think good coaches come in whether it was Lomanis or Stacker or any of the other coaches Gleason have come through there they, that obviously has an influence so when I was the QBL um, men's heat coach Trevor was the the Crocs you know and um, before that Stacks so Cam Tregard Greg Vanderjack played with me so you've kind of had a system where the pros met the talent level and the up and comers so that was a nice mix I, th- I still think that is one of the great treasures of coaching in Australia that the fact that you can put a professional with a semi-professional with a loot talent side. So, personally I really enjoy that level of coaching you know Probably, you know, you look back, you always do things better. But the essence of that fabric, of that team culture, I think really is really an enjoyable aspect. But I think combination, facilities, role models, coaching, population, access to it all, um, it certainly is a hard place to recruit to, as we've found with the Townsville Fire. You know, it's you have to do something special to dig someone out of Melbourne where they've lived their whole mm whole life you know where they've got three dogs and don't want to move them to a hot climate where they might lose all their fur because they live in a cold climate so little things like that play their part in In who you can recruit But uh, I think Townsville punches above its weight It probably was a new age Wollongong or Newcastle So in the Illawarra and uh, Newcastle In their their days And probably Geelong Mm. Those regional centres have a lot going for themselves So far as the economies (laughs) of scale And I think that's why they're successful
0: Yeah, yeah your involvement with the Townsville the Fire and the WMBL, can you just talk a little bit about what you did up there?
1: Yeah, so when I came back from overseas I uh, took a phone call uh, from the general manager and said, would you like to get involved? At that stage I was living on the Gold Coast and said, look if I can do it remote, I'll help you um, and then that's how it started and then eventually I, we still had our house in Townsville, so I moved back up there and Got more involved and more hands on as the performance director. So, my job was to kind of bring expertise to the board who were an excellent board, but give them that. So, oversight of what we're doing. So, when I went up there, you know, we had coaches trying to cut up tape and taking them all day Mondays after games and strength and conditioning not being what it should be. So, basically, I came in and provided the oversight on how to create a professional environment. I, and Susie Backovich has kind of noted that in one of her, her comments to me that, you know, kind of made a difference in, in getting that. But the role was basically improve those high-performance areas, so to speak, so getting them right, you know, making sure that we didn't sign off on a draw with adverse um travel which didn't give us enough recovery time even though it's very hard to do but okay well what does that mean to the training program how many days have you got uh educating a coach on how hard they can go having some measurement scale of uh, rates of exertion and some other ways of measuring that all the things that people do so we weren't doing those in in townsville we may have been aware of them, but we weren't doing them and then um you know i used to every weekend so i now you can get it online but i used to do the conversion stats to the advanced metrics for all the the team and send them off with my observations to the to the head coach every week and we'd talk about that because that gave us fuel to discuss what we were doing and one of the classics was there that heard me talk about before, it's not it's not the threes that you make, it's the threes that you take. Um, so it took us a while to do that. Um, in the second year and my first after my first full year there, I was able to have an impact in recruiting. So we recruited length and ability. So so we need you, to influence a three-point game, you got to defend it. So mm. to defend it, you need length basically on the perimeter, uh, as well as position, and you need know, tactics with it. So we recruited well, so we could we could take them, but we could also stop them. So my role was influencing attributes within recruiting, as in not just signing players, but signing uh, attributes about key players. Uh, that, overhauling the performance environment, uh, Paul Foster's now kind of coming to that role and making it bigger than Ben Herbert, saves the head coach so much time. Mm. Got the head coaches, the coaches speaking technologically with vision analysis, got that out to players earlier. Uh, my role with Shannon now, is, he's a first-year coach, but basically we're, we're on about a communication plan, an effective communication plan because he's new. Uh, he's a good communicator, but, you know, caring and communication in professional sport has now gone from 20th level to the number one level. So yeah. so just having an influence on those particular things over that period of time is kind of what I've tried to bring to the table.
0: Yeah, and you talked earlier just about the culture in that group as well. So how has that been maintained Um over a period of time and particularly also with different coaches maybe different people involved different players
1: yeah it's interesting to say because you know some of my good mates kind of ask me what I'm I'm doing up there and I explain it and I kind of go I don't know if anyone else is doing that type of thing but um, so, you know, within the recruiting process, there's a there's a criteria on on culture. So making sure you recruit the right people that fit your culture or doing the due diligence. You know, you don't want unhappy players and you don't want to create an unhappy environment for someone who's expecting someone uh, different. So uh, certainly culture is important and, and the attributes that go to making that but hence when i come back to effective communication communication plans caring about players making sure that head coaches having dialogues with coaches that everyone understands that that they've got role clarity that they know they can bitch or talk about it if they need to but face-to-face rather than closed doors. So culture is just the way you do things around there. It It is led a lot by whoever the head coach is. But with the fire, we've certainly set in some... Um, some policies and procedures to make sure that, as a club, that we're creating the right cultural environment, uh, which I think most professional clubs try and do, but we've actually kind of embedded it uh, into it, you know, as in even workplace health and safety and harassment and those things, kind mm. of taking the off court perspective to the on court. Uh, perspective about so that culture is enhanced, but I don't know if we've nailed it. I think we might have got it right once or twice, but it's it's evolving all the time because it's you know it depends upon the cycle whether an, an international player wants to come back and play or whether they want to stay in Europe. So you, you you're dealing with different. Uh, uh, what do you call it different different um, parameters every year when you're trying to create it but certainly Michaela Cox and Mia Murray before who have been stalwarts of culture within mm. the Towns of Fire and Susie obviously
0: yeah yeah for sure I just want to talk a little bit about junior basketball Yeah, uh, and also how it's set up in, in Queensland now like uh, back in my day and probably in your day too there was zones and, and uh, the top say six to eight you know, there's all the zones played against each other in the state mm. championships. Mm. So everyone played everyone. Nowadays, with with the uh, current format, with state classics being association-based and sometimes even three or four divisions, do you think the current model gives you the, the, the depth of uh, being able to look at who the who the you know who the best players are in the state and how they go against playing against...
1: Yeah, look, state. I think the first thing, you got, if you're talking about the system, you've got to get talent identification, right? And you've got to know what yeah. you're looking for, whether it's with the Townsville Fire or, or with junior basketball. Uh, I, when I first came to Queensland, I came in after that system, that zonal system. So the late Bob Young, you know, I learned off those guys on what it was and that was more of an all-star regional thing, which is the existing school school structure mm. there. So it still exists. It exists in the schools, but from an association point of view, and you talk about Townsville, I don't think Townsville would be as successful. You know, it is it, it, what makes it now as the Vince Hickey champion is the new model. Mm. It's not the old model. Yeah. Um. So it depends upon which aspect it, you're talking about it. I would simply say my observations over that 30 years is that this, the growth of basketball has been largely driven by junior uh, competition and the maturation that goes with it. I'm not sure that the, the skills and the technical coaching that goes with it has kept lockstep with that, but nonetheless, competition has put us more on an even footing with the other big metropolitan cities of Australia, be it Sydney or or Melbourne, Adelaide's a different model. Um, um... <laughs> So I definitely think it's had its positives and Mm. it's certainly had an impact. It certainly has challenges for identification. But in this state, we still have open trials. So Mm. if you want to get on a program, it doesn't matter what division you're in. Um, If you come in and we don't know of you or whatever, you're not prejudiced, we have a look at you and see what you're doing. And obviously there's lock steps. People want to go from Division 4 teams to Division 2 teams to Division 1. But, you know, being a regional person And having studied that a long time, both in New South Wales and being in charge of that for the QAS the regional model isn't all about centralisation. So it's about providing opportunities through a decentralised model. So I think the unique thing about our uh, BQJBC, or it's now CQJBC and NQJBC, so they're the regional components, which then go in and gets the pecking order for a state championship. But everyone can still go off. The bird and still goes off and plays Division Two or Division Three and has a great time and promotes basketball, you know. And then every now and again they'll throw up a, oh, like a state representative, what like they did this year in under sixteen level. So mm. go to the Wildcats. Go the Wildcats. <laughs> past Wildcat coach too in the QBL. So past Wildcat player.
0: <laughs> so um, I was going to ask you to with the uh, the amount of basketball that kids can play these days but also this other sport as well so between school club rep programs like what sort of things is happening that you can see that are, are fairly important in terms of that load management
1: uh, well, I think um, Beck McKinnon, Sam McKinnon's wife actually sent me an email which gave me thinking and, and basically was saying we won't be as good unless we play as many games as what they play in Melbourne like, well, well, do I want my kid to play 64 games a year? You know, that's, that's the reality So, I think even though it's fairly intense with what we've got it's actually less and there's more potential time off in Queensland than what there is in Certainly in Victoria, having talked to my friends down there um, what's important um, coach education and understanding you know that the tacticals underpinned by the technical the technicals underpinned by the, the physical and the physicals underpinned by the mental well, you've got to understand that so if you're burning kids out, you know, at training and games, then you're not going to get your optimal performance to, to get whatever your goal is, whether it's winning or something else. So I think overtraining is a big issue and it lies in the hands of the coach and it lies in the hands of how the coach runs the program and how he or she keeps their players enthusiastic and wanting to play and then that gets back to are they getting opportunity when they play because it's a long season if you're not playing Mm. and if the coach doesn't trust the bench then that kid is getting alienated. So that's a that's a mental overload, and then you've got the physical overload. So we're very uh, with the NPP programs, I'm very mindful of what they're doing. So we've got a lot of fine emerging talent. But the big thing is making sure NPP. Can you identify a day and a half a week that you don't have basketball? Mm. You know, like that sounds like a fairly basic thing to do. But then when you say, well, you're going to a, you're on scholarship at a private school and you're expected to play volleyball or basketball then the loads get compounded so uh, it's not just basketball it's life Um, but coaches need to be critically aware of it Um, what are we doing about it we manage it really closely within SPP and NPP we educate uh, our coaches and our athletes about it we monitor it really uh, closely at NPP level so that the you know, any any the way you got to look at it is, if someone's injured or burnt out, then they're not training. So in their youth years, that means that they're not acquiring skill, which is what they what you want them to do. Mm. So it's in your interest to not to burn them out physically, so they've got more time to acquire skill. But that transaction is lost on most coaches. Um, but making sure the workload, uh, we've just made a decision to go to carnivals for the 12s and 14s okay. in, the, in the south. Yeah. Uh, so that's a one in three rather than one in every week. Yeah. And that's not compounded by travelling every week and hopefully by families having some time off to do what they want to do and potentially instead of spending five hours to travel for a game, you can still have your two-hour training session mm. and still go to the beach or picnic with your family
0: yeah just on the load management though one of the things I uh, struggle with a little is like how do you get through the skills that you need to teach taking into account that, you know, at best you might have two, one-and-a-half-hour sessions a week. There's still, like, obviously gaps there you've got to cover in terms of Well,
1: I don't don't think it's up to you to teach. It's up to to the player to learn. So one thing that we're big on here with the SPP is, like, if you want to be successful, you're going to have to train by yourself in your own time Mm. and you're going to have to know what skills to work on. So the example before was shooting, you know, we've got some simple tests but not everyone does it, you know, but those who do do it get better Mm. so I think it's signposting and then getting them done and it's it's like it's the compound interest of the 1% so yes you don't have enough time or you think you don't have enough time to influence skill but if you say for example teaching shooting you've put some right principles in there you've encouraged them you've uh, rewarded hard work you've highlighted people who are achieved which is kind of what we do in MPP Um, um, and we give it time to mature and we're not we're not um, distracted or seduced by scoreboards because we're not playing games we're just interested in your skill progression so I think what you're alluding to is that you know coaches say there's never enough time but if you do the compound interest thing, and if you're doing the right thing over a period of time and the kid is truly loving what they're doing then they'll go off and practice it by themselves so they'll do it ten times more than what you what you would normally do in a session and if you give that to them at the right time so if you give them to them before they're 15 years of age then they're going to when they've got time then you know they're going to do it and they're not always going to do it when they're in year 12 you know, mm. If you get what I mean. And yeah, yeah. trying to break into a QBL squad or whatever and they yeah. think don't have time to do it. So it really is about getting skill into people early and and I think the other thing is making sure that the young kids don't break down. So with NPP, we've got tallest athletes, a fourteen year old, though he's bigger than like well, he's six nine. Right. Um but the 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 key with him is his strength and conditioning program, which is the accumulation over time. So, to give an example, he hasn't been injured in two years, right. even though he's got a long back, long arms, stuff like that. And the reason I put that down to is because his focus has just been on physically training, Yeah. not overly playing. You know, being you know offered scholarships, but it's not an age that he has to take them. So he's he's not not compounded so he's got a nice little mix of amount of time that he can practice his skills and if I bring a specialist coach in he's got the time and desire to practice those things Mm. and gets done Yeah, it builds up so I don't know if I answered your question but um Yeah, overload is an issue so far as the physical management, <coughs> mm-hmm. um, but also the mental thing, uh, a lot of mental depression around now, um, yeah. which I think emanates from uh, you know, some environments which aren't as conducive as what they should be. So trying to put the fun back into things, I think, yeah. is now probably more important than what it was.
0: Yeah, for sure. You, you talked a little bit about uh, QBL there. It's probably um, something that's a little bit topical at the moment is what's mm-hmm. happening with uh, the former state league and, and what might happen in the
1: yeah, future. Yeah, uh, NBL well, one yeah it's, I think uh, the, the member clubs and the state body Basketball Queensland have decided to uh, accept a, a proposal to be part of NBL one so it's a it's a rebadging but it's also a restructuring uh, it's a different economy and a different different rules Uh, But that fits in really well with uh, BQ, who have been, you know, we've been worried about... You know, people over-investing in competition, and, and I don't want to say this the wrong way, but sometimes you can over-invest in QBL and pay professional players and get the economy all wrong, and then you kind of can neglect your local association, or yeah. you can't afford to have a coach, a part-time coaching director to coach the kids, of which are 80% of your membership, mm. you know, so... So I think uh, it fits in pretty well with what we would like to do in, in Queensland and I think the member clubs have agreed with that and then given our desire to improve governance and uh, increase uh, growth and participation at a youth level, uh, I think that fits in pretty well with us from my perspective at least. Mm. So
0: do you know how it's going to work yet or is it still being worked out? It's
1: still worked out. You oh, know, okay. There's other people who are paid to kind of work out those those logistics, but, you know, like I think Queensland's experimented with every format of QBL or, or State yeah. League under the sun, so because of the diversity of the state's so it'll work out something that's good. But I think the key thing is, you know, there's some, like every, from the way I understand, every game will be streamed. So you can watch more content, yeah. which is better. Um, it may affect going against the gate, which is a problem we kind of have with the WNBL. But, you know, it's not un- unsurmountable. Mm. Um, and I think that... Um, the allure of having national finals, which is what the old ABA used to do many years ago when southern districts and others used to dominate mm-hmm. and yeah. win through to that. Um, you know, so those days are back. I tended to like that system because um, you could match yourself, you know, against the other... Other clubs, and that's where Mm. Rod Pop and Cairns had a lot of success in the early days, and it led them to becoming an NBL franchise. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Those things pay off.
0: Mm, That's right. And it's all about putting those opportunities in place so Mm. that something can happen.
1: Yeah, I think so. Yeah, I hope that it's better. So I think it came at a good time for Basel, Queensland, and from clubs to look at whether they they wanted to go that direction or wanted to go in a different direction. So, mm. at the end of the day, people will be catered for in competition. It's just about competition, at suitable standards. Yeah. You know,
0: probably just wanted to wrap up now. So, um, what advice would you give to younger coaches in terms of being a student of the game and just to talk a little bit about the style of play, I think that's a, a great document and obviously mm. credit to uh, the work that you've done in that yeah. uh, and in talking to you over a period of time I've sort of found that you're always learning and you're always asking questions mm. and, and I, I know I've really appreciated um, having a talk to you from mm. time to time about different things.
1: Well, I think that's probably the thing, you probably summed it up and I don't didn't have an answer before you started to speak but I think the answer is if you're a young coach ask questions, you know like have an inquiring mind, it doesn't matter who you listen to, the, the best coaches have the inquiring mind like Nick Nurse who I know relatively well is wired a particular way so he's wired towards innovation he's wired to I can be different I don't have to do it the same way and I think it's a long time that it took to, to do that um, to become part of his DNA but look you always coach your personality but your, your, your personality will evolve over a period of time uh, I think if you've kind of got got a growth mindset which is best encapsulated by what you said if you keep asking questions you know um you're gonna you're gonna find a way if you have a passion you may give up but you'll follow your passion and you'll be better directed so um the argentinian coach is actually a brazilian i think i can never think of his name but he has a classic quotes um so he had uh, scholar and Ginobili and all those guys coming through. He just coached at the last World Championship. He's been out of it, came back and coached Argentina. But he has this great line, uh, just when I think I know all the answers, they change the questions. <laughs> and I think that's that probably sums it up for me. Yeah, so, yeah. that's good.
0: <laughs> Well, uh, Warwick, thanks very much today for making the time to have a chat. I really appreciate it. Yeah. And I'm sure my uh, podcast listeners will, will get a lot out of it too. And um, all the best uh, with the conference that's coming up. We'll give that a plug. It's uh, end
1: of November. Coach's weekend. Yeah. yeah, last weekend in November and the first Sunday of December. So a lot of really good speakers, free to come in, just check in, just register online. Pick your fancy. We've tried to tell you what it's about. We've got Rob Beveridge coming up and Peter Lonegan as well as a lot of treasures within our system that we have here that people can learn out, especially if they've got a growth mindset. So mm. if you don't know what you don't know, have a look at the program. Yeah. You'll see something of interest.
0: No, that's an excellent uh, initiative and uh, I think it'll be a great weekend. So... Um, yeah, I really encourage everyone to get along if they can. So, thanks again, Warwick. Thanks, thanks,
1: mate. Uh, appreciate your time. Good on you. Okay. Thanks. Have it goes well.
0: Thank you. Thanks for listening to the podcast today. I hope you enjoyed it. You can get in touch with me through my email at Australian Basketball Coach at gmail.com. That's Australian Basketball Coach, all one word, lowercase, at gmail.com. Also, follow me on social media. I'm on Twitter at OzBeeBallCoach and also on Facebook with Australian Basketball Coach. So, So uh, looking forward to hearing from you and thanks again for listening.